Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by Dr. Christopher Carter, who is a pastor, a professor, a vegan, and the author of the extraordinary new book, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. Wow, I love it. That's cool. How often do we find somebody who puts together all of these things in one place that obviously, once you listen to him, you know that they all belong together? Food justice, veganism, and soul food. Such a fascinating interview. I want everybody to hear it. Me too. And on the Flock bonus segment this week, I'll be continuing that conversation with Christopher. And if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you are not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have some really inspiring guests, some really cool conversations about activism and animals and life on planet Earth. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you could set up one-on-one conversations with me also if you're in the Flock by emailing info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get started with our interview, it was Passover and Easter last week, and we did both. We didn't do Ramadan. I feel kind of bad. I mean, all everybody was making such a fuss about the fact that the three of them came at the same time, thinking that that was going to change the world. I'm not sure the world has changed, but I have my fingers crossed. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I could use a little change making <laughs> when it comes to the world. But in the meantime, we did obviously have vegan celebrations of both. We had on the Seder plate a beet instead of an egg. And for Easter, we made tofu scramble, which is funny because we had a, a, you came over and, and a few other people came over, one of whom was not vegan. And it's so funny because he's like always hanging out with us. And he always has zero expectations of vegan food, like 100% of the time. 100% of the time, he's like, wow, this is actually good, as if he completely (laughs) forgot. And as if he thinks we eat crap all the time. I know. Yeah, exactly. And so he's eating the tofu scramble. And, you know, it's we were not making an egg analog. Like, it wasn't just egg or something like that. No, it was very tofu-y. Yeah, and he was like, wow, these eggs are amazing. And he kept referring to them as eggs. And I was like, that's so odd. Like, I would, I can imagine someone saying that about just egg or something like that, but I do love a good tofu scramble, I have to say. I do too. It, it is one of those foods that you don't really expect to be as good at as it is, but yours is particularly good. You know how to spice it well. Well, speaking of spicing it, I do use egg salt, which is black salt, and it makes it eggy. It makes it like to smell eggy too. Yeah. Black salt is, is crucial. Yeah. You could get it at an Indian grocery store if anyone, or on the internet machine. So speaking of the internet machine, we did pull out a couple uh, articles that we wanted to discuss today. So where do you want to start, Marianne? We have two ends of the spectrum on what's happening for animals. One is hardcore grassroots activism 
And the other is the the very highest levels of replacement technology. So let's start with the activism, and then we'll we'll move to the technology. I, I I'm taking it from a USA Today story, but probably many of you have heard about the really amazing protest work by two separate women, uh, DXE activists, who who went to Timberwolves games. Uh, that is apparently a basketball team. And it is apparently owned by this guy who owns factory farms. I just love these women. They interrupted the game, professional basketball games, the first one by gluing her her hand to the floor and the second one by chaining herself to the basket to in order to wow. protest. And, you know, the coverage was not nearly as good as it should have been because they don't, you know, they just say it's an animal rights pro- protest, but they wisely wore T-shirts that very loudly proclaimed Glenn Taylor roasts animals alive, referring, of course, to ventilation shutdown, the current method for killing millions and millions and millions of chickens. Uh, we we first heard of it. It didn't first get invented, but we first heard about it, most of us, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when the supply chains were so screwed up that they had animals in the in in the pipeline and you know they keep producing more and more animals so they had to get rid of animals so what they do is just shut down the ventilation and and these animals cook to death it's just unbelievable the reason they're doing it now of course and it all has to do with chickens is because bird flu is raging throughout this country just raging and we're talking about millions and millions of animals who are being roasted alive because they got sick because humans are totally fucked up so these women the passion it's like it's moving the amount of passion, the amount of courage in front of all of these thousands and thousands of people. This one is by Zoe Rosenberg. And, you know, I'm trying to see whether I want the name of the other one who I don't have this article, but, you know, kudos to them. Some people think this kind of protest makes us look bad. I say, screw you. Like anything that makes anybody look at us and and think that we exist and think that there are people out there who care about animals. I mean, unless they're committing like serious violence, I say, I love you. All right. Our next story at the other end of the animal activism spectrum um, is about cellular agriculture. I just found this very, very exciting. The Dutch government just invested 60 million euros in in pushing cellular agriculture forward. And I, I that's a lot. And they they are putting a lot of a lot of uh, thought and and accepting of the mission and in, into this whole project. And it's really cool. And it's a reminder that, you know, you don't have to have a huge country in order to be a leader in cellular agriculture. A very small country, if they have the tech, could do it. Israel is certainly doing it. The Israeli government is also putting a lot of money into this tech. So, you know, the race is on. Like every government should be getting into this race and and moving this forward. And I, I'll just take a little quote from this report that the Netherlands government put out about the growth plan. Compared to traditional processes for making animal products, cellular agriculture has many advantages, less impact on climate and biodiversity, less land and water use, smaller risks of zoonotic disease outbreaks, less waste, and a controlled and transparent production process. The addition of cellular agriculture offers the Netherlands economic opportunities in both earning capacity and sustainability gains. With 
with an excellent position and reputation in the fields of innovative agriculture, biotechnology, and collaborative culture, the Netherlands has the potential to become the leading cellular agriculture ecosystem globally. This is in line with the government strategy for strengthening research and innovation ecosystems. I mean, come on, everybody, like, get your country on board. The Netherlands, a tiny little country, is planning to be in the leadership of this of this type of food production. Uh, Israel, another tiny country, is another one that's going to be in the leadership. So, so let's everybody get on board. Exciting news, though. It would still be nice to be able to buy this stuff somewhere. I would really like to know when it's going to market. Yeah. Very exciting news. Well, thank you for keeping us up to date. I know you've been in need of some good news lately because you've been sort of struggling, I think, as we all have regarding the happenings in the world. And I was a little bit intrigued, but vaguely concerned by where your thought process has taken you. And I wonder if you would care to share with our listeners what what you've been thinking about. Yeah, the, like I just want Everybody, no, I brought up this topic twice and Jasmine has said, no, we can't talk about that. But I finally explained to her what I meant by it. And she said, all right, we can talk about that maybe. The line on the note says psychopaths. <laughs> yes. Well, that's my, that's what I've been thinking. And, you know, it's not like I have a lot of knowledge about mental illness. So, uh, so take it with a grain of salt. But from what everything I've heard about psychopaths, and I understand there is such a thing called mass psychopathy, which I think has to do with people who aren't necessarily psychopaths all the time getting caught up in psychopathic behavior. And I just think that that's what meat eating is. And the thing that started me thinking along these lines is, though this is a very different topic, it's what's going on in Ukraine. And, you know, we've all heard all the stories of atrocities, just horrifying atrocities going on. And yet you think that these Russian soldiers, most of them, there's probably a few psychopaths in there, but the vast majority of them are probably perfectly nice Russian boys who have never done anything really horrible in their lives. And this is what, I mean, it's certainly not the first time this has happened in war. People get caught up in in what would be seen as psychopathic behavior. And I'm using the term psychopath to be generally meaning complete lack of empathy, just total absence of, of, of empathy and, and straight thinking about what's going on with another person. And, you know, I don't think this is very innovative thinking on my part, but I'm thinking about meat eaters. And it just seems exactly the same, this problem that we have, that you can give them information that in their regular lives, they can care about animals. But in this one segment, it's just a complete lack of the ability to feel empathy for this, for these classes of animals. And, and uh, what, what we, I feel like we were watching something together recently where they were all concerned about birds and there was all this uh, worry about what was, what was going to happen to all these birds. And then they, they, like the idea that they would be caring about chickens was seen as ridiculous. We've all seen this kind of thing as if chickens aren't actually birds. But I also read, and this could be totally wrong, don't, please do not take this as men, mental health advice, but that one of the best ways to deal with psychopaths, and I'm thinking of this as an activism technique, is not to oppose them, uh, not to tell them they're wrong, but to flatter them and to cajole them and to tell them they're wonderful, because that's the only thing they can hear. And even if people are just psychopathic in this one aspect of their life, I was thinking that might be good 
um, advice to listen to for activists that, that, you know, we should praise people more for that. We think they're the ones who are most likely to care about animals compared to all of the other people around or something like that. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it does sort of remind me of this show that I've been watching on Apple TV. And I, I know you haven't seen it, but it's called Severance. I do recommend it. It is pretty dark, but it's like, it's very compelling. It's cinematically stunning and extremely eerie. And basically it's about this corporation that has created a way that it's people who d- decide to work for them get a chip planted in their brain that allows them to completely forget what their work is. So when they're in, when they're at work, when they go in the elevator, the chip gets activated. When they arrive at their office floor, they have no idea who they are on the outside of work. And when they go back in at the end of the day, get to the bottom of the elevator, they have no idea what they do for a living. They just know that they're part of this severance program. And there is strong implications, though it's never totally clear that what they're doing is really unethical and really dark, uh, you know, like just killing people, perhaps that is never stated, but it's somewhat implied. And it, it, it is very similar. Yeah, I totally see where you're going with this. Yeah, and we were discussing this with our friend Sherry Kolb, who was on the podcast recently, too. And she, you know, she basically sees everything as a vegan metaphor, which I love about her. I love having conversations with her because she somehow brings everything back to veganism. It's awesome. I'm, we're hoping to get her for a few, uh, Flock Friday in the near future. So if you're in the Flock, stay tuned. And anyway, it is true. It's like these people just have no idea. And if the vast majority of people were able to tap into the part of them that is detached from the reality of what we're doing to animals, it's possible they would feel, their soul would feel so tortured. They would feel so uh, like beyond devastated that, you know, they would go vegan. (laughs) Yeah. And I've always thought that that's one of the, one of the blocks, Uh, you know, I can never really figure out what the blocks are that people have in continuing to eat animals. But one of them might be that is that once you acknowledge this, you like, you feel so bad about, about what you've done before. Like, it's just overwhelming the, I don't know whether it's guilt or shame or just sorrow. It's, it's a lot to face. Yeah, totally. But I, yeah, because a lot of vegans say to me, I wish I had gone vegan earlier. And I have to just be like, yeah, but you did. You know, you went vegan. Oh, I say that all the time. I went vegan in my 40s. I mean, it just makes me so sad. Right. But look at what you've done. It, you know, it's just we can't dwell on that. We just have to sort of move forward knowing that now we know. And I do recommend the show Severance, by the way. Yeah, it sounds good. And I want to hear your discussion with Dr. Carter. So let's move to that. The Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter is an assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego and a pastor in the United Methodist Church. While working on his doctorate, his dissertation, Eating Oppression, Food, Faith, and Liberation, would be the foundation for his recent book, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. He is on the board of directors of Farm Forward, an anti-factory farming nonprofit, and he will be joining Marianne right after this. 
This episode of Our Hen House is brought to you in part by Meow Meow Tweet. Meow Meow Tweet creates vegan personal care for everybody. Their products are always ethical, low waste, handmade, and cruelty-free. As the first brand to introduce 100% backyard compostable deodorant sticks and lip balms, their skincare, body care, and deodorants are designed to minimize plastic consumption, and they're offered at an accessible price point. Meow Meow Tweet takes a slow food approach to skincare. All formulations are artfully blended by a certified aromatherapist and herbalist. Ingredients are certified organic, they're non-GMO, and they're from strong or renewable plant populations. And they also avoid materials that harm the ecosystems of animals and people, which is what we're all about at our hen house. Products are made in small batches by hand in their California micro factory. Meow Meow Tweet is also a certified B Corp, plastic negative, and a climate neutral company. How much do we love this? Meow Meow Tweet redistributes funds to causes in the categories of social justice, animal justice, and nature. Our Hen House listeners can get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Again, you get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Welcome to our hen house, Christopher. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you. Loved your book. It's different. It's passionate. It's really, really a good book. It's called The Spirit of Soul Food, and it kind of explores soul food's past. And I think, as you put it, offers a new vision of its future. But can you tell us about your idea of what soul food looks like and tastes like just for you? Yeah, for me, soul food at its core really is food that is cooked with the wisdom, like the agricultural and culinary wisdom of African diasporic peoples. And so for me, when I think about what that tastes like, part of that process, I go right to cooking (laughs) because I think some of that is kind of shaped in the kitchen, in that culinary experience and sharing those stories as a part of it. I think also certain in my mind, when I think of certain things, you know, it's foods that kind of allow us to tell the story of our ancestral past and how we came to be in America and how we've been able to survive and thrive in the midst of that. And so I think what those foods look like have always shifted and changed. Like they just they just have, whether it be beans and rice, as a staple, whether it be okra, whether it be some, some kind of gourd, there's been different kinds of versions of whatever we might constitute certain staple foods. But at their core, at their essence, they've really been about the preservation and promotion of community and about passing on this particular kind of wisdom that I think we brought over with us um, as enslaved folk. So ultimately, you propose three fundamental principles for eating practices and seeking justice for food workers, caring for the earth. I think those two kind of speak for themselves. And the third you called soulful eating, not soul like full, with two L's. And the first two are, like I said, they're they're complicated issues, but they're self-explanatory. But what does the idea of soulful eating mean to you? It means taking seriously the impact 
that our what we consume not only has on our bodies, but also the impact it has on the bodies of others. So that includes non-human animals. It includes other human beings. It includes taking seriously, I think, the moral obligation we have. As I said, when you think about the definition of soul food, about the preservation and promotion of community, how might we eat in ways that takes seriously the harm, right, that our diets may cause to others? And how might we eat in ways that also is an invitation for us to live into our fullest sense of self that allows us to be healthy and whole and are consistent with the moral values that we uphold? And so for me, soulful is about the essence of Black soul, of that kind of preservation and promotion of community, but also that experiential wisdom that we've gleaned, that improvisation that we've had to have as Black folks to make a way out of no way. And it's full in the sense that it allows us to really embrace the totality of who we are. So often I think we think about soul food, we only think about it with the context of enslavement in mind. We don't think about the full picture of African agriculture and African foods and our identities so often, unfortunately for Black people, we can just limit our understandings to enslavement rather than recognizing our and fully embracing our past. This is a consequence of racism, right? This isn't something I think Black folks do. Like, we just don't think, we don't know. It's because we've been told that Africa has no history, that we shouldn't, that it has no history worth learning. And so it's about kind of challenging those principles, as I call it in the book, decolonizing. I think it's crucial for us to understand and develop a concept of soulful eating. So it's really common for people in marginalized communities. This is, really struck me about your book so much. It's really common to vehemently resist the comparison to the animal. I mean, understandably, I think we can all understand why, even though people in the animal rights movement try maybe to avoid that in some way or to communicate something about it. But it's very hard to do. But you do it. You really turn this on its head and, and you kind of embrace the comparison and then include the animal within the circle of those who matter, which I can't tell you, like it was just revelatory to me. So can you just, instead of me keeping talking about what you said, can you just talk about what you said? Yeah. So I want to say two things. Thank you. First of all, that's very kind of you to say, very high praise. I think among the challenges the animal rights movement folks have, particularly those of them who are white, is... You, in order to fully embrace the argument that I'm going to make, it requires you to deal with your own internalized racism because we all have it, because we, we are all immersed in a normative structure that is racist. And so people in the animal rights movements consider themselves to usually be progressive and they don't think of themselves as doing anything that pertains to racism. And so what I'm asking them to do is to recognize that we are all wrapped up in this structure that's traumatized us all. All white people are traumatized by racism just as people of color. It's different, but we all have trauma. And so confronting that trauma, I think, is what gave me the tools and a language to do some of the work that I try to do in the book. And so essentially, to, to get to the point, uh, to answer your question, what I argue is that for the most part, Black folks, people who have been fighting for uh, justice in this country. We've used the language of basically saying, you know, we should be treated as full human beings, that we should be treated as human beings because that, that's what we are and, and we have been dehumanized. And so we've resisted this kind of comparison to the animal because we want to distance ourselves from the animal as means of promoting 
and affirming our own humanity. And what I argue, and I think I try to do it pretty successfully, I think I do successfully in the book, is that that's a failed endeavor because that isn't fighting for liberation from the structures of oppression. That's fighting for equality with the oppressor. That's fighting for an idea and understanding of human that allow that puts you in a kind of oppressive hierarchical position that allows you to exploit other beings. For me to say, I want to be treated just like or be able to be like your stereotypical hetero, straight, white, cisgender, male, patriarchal system, like that to me doesn't actually solve the problem. It solves my individual problem, <laughs> right? It doesn't solve the problem of sexism, of patriarchy, of animal exploitation, any of those things. And so I want to challenge, and what I try to do is challenge the definition of, of human. And I say, really, this means that, the, that we are entangled with the animal because the idea of the animal as it has been developed within an American context, is tied up with race. And so because we were dehumanized, we were called animals, this idea of being human is something that's always impossible. We're always, as Black people, always performing humanness. We're always performing humanness to the extent that we can perform whiteness. And so we have to move past the idea of human to define something else, to define a way of being human that actually embraces the interconnectedness we have with each other, other human beings, and with non-human nature. That by its fundamental principles is not something that justifies our exploitation of other bodies. That is the kind of liberation that we need. That's the kind of liberation that I think is sustainable, that really is transformative and, and, and healing. And so that's the argument that I make, is that at its core, the animal question is the race question because of the way race was structured in America. My next question was going to be based on a quote from your book, and it's such a powerful statement. And I think you, I mean, maybe you have something to add, but you kind of have just addressed what, it, but I'm going to read it anyway, because it's such a great quote. Recall that the human-animal divide as Western white Christianity constructed it during modernity is the theological and ideological foundation that supports the framework of white dominance. And now that I've read it, I realize there is something I want to explore there that you didn't go into, and that is the role. I mean, you are Christian, and that is your life. I mean, that is your work. But at the same time, you're differentiating your Christianity from Western white Christianity as a system, I assume, not as every single Western white Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Again, can you can you just take over and talk about this? Because I find this so fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting when I think, my, for me, my veganism is rooted in my religion. And there's so many Christians who resist this movement. I think that part of the reason I had to include Christianity in this book, because I debated and I had opportunities to write this book without religion, was because if you're going to talk seriously about the construction of race, and seriously about the construction of animals, you have to include Christianity because it was fundamental in the development of those ideas and ideologies. Uh, like race as we understand it, or racism as we understand it, I should say, but particularly race, was moralized through a Christian framework. It was deemed theologically excusable, permissible, I should say, to enslave people, to buy them, <laughs> right? And, and, and so as much as we want to have a conversation perhaps about how we talk about, and especially in America, about the Civil War and, and how we tell that story, 
I always tell people this is a theological crisis because people use the biblical text to justify enslavement. And so their debates were centered around, well, if I say slavery is illegal, that means I'm saying the Bible is somehow wrong. And I don't believe the Bible is wrong, so therefore slavery must be okay because there's lots of stuff in the Bible that you can read that's pretty pro-slavery. And so if I'm going to talk about race in a serious way, if I'm going to talk about the ways in which people have morally justified the exploitation of black labor, have they morally justified the extermination of indigenous folks, how they morally continue to justify the exploitation of Latinx and immigrants, this is all done to the language of often of religion. It's been really fruitful for folks who want to justify the dehumanization, basically of saying that your humanness is on a scale to white Western cisgender male humanness. And that stinks as a Christian, right? <laughs> like, this, so, like, I hate that. Not great. But at the same time, to be clear, the Christianity that I practice, the Christianity that I think is more consistent with the religion of Jesus, as Howard Thurman calls it, as I, as I call it in the book, is the Christianity that enslaved Black folks were able to create. They use this religion and they say, hey, this religion is about resisting empire. No, Jesus himself was a colonized Jew. He was resisting empire. That's why he was murdered by the Roman Empire, because he was talking about overthrowing empire and the ways in which they felt it would be subversive for them. And so I try to embrace that kind of radical tradition. And like you, as you said, turn it on its head and say that for us to take Christianity seriously, we have to ask ourselves and disentangle the ways in which white supremacy and white body supremacy especially has kind of shaped how we engage with not only people of color, but also with non-human nature and non-human animals. And of course, all of this also ties up to the other subject of your book, which is food justice. Some people don't don't tie these issues together, but you certainly do. And you've also said that churches are really crucial in helping to challenge food injustice. Can you just kind of catch me up to where we are with that? What is kind of the landscape of the involvement of churches in food justice generally and on the question of animals? Most of the time, churches tend to be on the periphery with just like food pantries. You know, they try to provide, they try to be stopgaps. And that's important. As I talk about in the book, this book emerged out of my own personal experience from a lot of different perspectives of my family, from multiple sides of my family. And I grew up food insecure and would not have been able to eat had it not been for these food banks and food spaces to be able to provide food from churches. However, I think churches can play a much larger role in the movement by actually using their resources in ways that actually move us more towards food sovereignty. Really like using their, especially rural churches, like where my family's mostly from Louisiana and Mississippi, but even urban churches as well. Like you have land that you can use to cultivate, that you can hire people away from these factory farms. You know, you can do things to actually provide for people and provide jobs. And also because you're a nonprofit, you're not trying to exploit people to make a bunch of money. You're really trying to feed people, not only in the kind of physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense. I think churches, and I shouldn't, I just say just religious communities in general, if we think about how we might use land can really be, we can radically alter food injustice in this country, but it requires us to take a different kind of a more proactive approach. How do you account for the fact that most churches really take a pass on the animal question? That kind of just don't address it at all. When it seems to those who of us who have thought about it to be this hugely fundamental moral issue. I think it's a couple of things. One, they often, you know, churches can kind of sit back and they say that 
and maybe this is how a little bit more about how I answered the question, actually. Churches will say, well, you're trying to say animal life and human life are the same. And for within a theological framework, they would argue, and I think there's a fair argument to say that that's not the case within a Christian framework, that there is a hierarchy there, and that you're trying to flatten that hierarchy to create this kind of egalitarian society is inconsistent with Christianity. And so it's kind of a non-starter for them. And I think that's a part of it. For them, it's, and, and that's one part. The other part is the same reasons other people wrestle with the animal question is because it conf- makes them confront their own identities that are steeped in the foods we eat and that challenges their identity. But the response I have actually, and I want to suggest too, is I actually, and you probably could get this from the book, I, my, my veganism, I love animals. I should want to say that. I, I love animals. My wife is a veterinarian. I'm a fan of animals. But it wasn't the animal question necessarily moved me to veganism as much as it was recognizing that the logics of exploitation of non-human animals was the same as it justified the exploitation of people of color, that the people working in these fields are black and brown, that the people who work in these factories are black and brown, that the toxic waste that comes from these places, that people that are impacted disproportionately by them are poor people, are black people, are brown people. And so for me, it's a very anthropocentric concern, <laughs> like the, you know, because the impact it has on people. The problem is, unfortunately, those people don't count. So many Christians don't want to take it. So in this, I get back to racism. They don't want to take seriously the impact that those industries have on people because they're impacting poor people and black people and indigenous people kind of a multiple answers where I'm saying it's racism, some of it's theology, some of it's ideology, but it's it's all of that. It's not just one thing. It's multiple things that are at play. Yeah. I I mean, I think most of us come at this whole issue from a certain direction. Most of it, most of us, it's like, you know, I think for most of us, it's, it's just like an intense feeling about animals and what they're going through. But whatever direction you come from, you then realize that it opens up into so many other issues and so many other injustices. How do you think the anti-racist movement, using the term movement broadly, not just the organizations or whatever, and the animal rights movement can do better to work together to advance these goals, at least people who are are open to that? I think similar to the way I think people like Carol Adams talked about and tried to make the connection between the feminist movement and the animal rights movement by drawing the connections, I think I'll speak specifically from like anti-racism broadly understood. I think we would do well. And I say we, because I'm a person who's actively do anti-racism trainings. I do like the other stuff I do is always is with respect to race and race theory to get folks to recognize the interlocking and intersecting oppressions of animals as it relates to bodies that are erased, particularly black bodies and indigenous bodies. The challenge we have with that is it deals with our feelings. <laughs> and that sounds so simple, but it's the truth. And I think there's a really excellent book that I would recommend. I'm not probably going to pronounce his name correctly, but the name of the author is Rizma Menachem. I think is how you say it, but the book is My Grandmother's Hands. And he talks about the affective impact of race on our bodies and the ways in which by not processing and actually allowing ourselves to fully, as he talks about going through a kind of clean pain process of racism, it stifles our growth in dealing with some of these issues. And so among the challenges I have with the Black and anti-racist community is when I bring anything to do with animals, they immediately get so resistant because it triggers all kinds of responses with them with respect to the ways in which we've been historically dehumanized. And so that requires them to tend to those wounds. Similarly, when I bring up issues with the animal rights movement that really cause them to confront 
racism, it's the same thing, right? It's just, it's coming a different perspective, but it brings up issues that requires them to tend to the ways in which they're dealing with their guilt and shame and everything else around race and to really tend to it. This is where I think it's helpful. Uh, Menachem talks about in the book, he doesn't use the term white fragility. He calls it a false fragility that white folks have been so used to allowing and actually forcing people of color to carry their feelings, really, you know, to, to, to feel for them, to, to carry the burden of their suffering, that when they are confronted and have to deal with it themselves, that's when this kind of false fragility comes in and say, well, I can't do it. And he's like, well, no, you're a human just like I am. You're capable of doing it. You just don't have to, you have to cultivate the resilience, right? The resilience to do this. And so those are the ways in which I, I, I would actually argue it's more of an issue of both groups needing to do that kind of healing. And one could say our country, right? We don't, we're having a debate about critical race theory right now because we don't want to actually talk about what happened. We want to pretend that it wasn't as bad as it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so many people in the animal rights movement, and I think justifiably, this isn't a criticism, I would say it of myself, though I could criticize myself, but, you know, they feel like they're doing good. They want to do good and they're passionate about this issue. And it is hard in that position to be called out on something. But, you know, that's how life works. I noticed that you were influenced by the work of Marjorie Spiegel. I go back a long time in this movement. So I remember when Marjorie Spiegel's book was, was it first came out and yet it has kind of disappeared from a little bit, dis, well, fairly a lot disappeared from, from the conversation. And I think it is because there's just this fear of talking about any kind of comparison between black slavery and what has happened to animals. But you've really embraced it, didn't you? I did because I think in part because I wasn't exposed to the book. Before I was exposed to the book, I was exposed to the realities of black folks who worked on those farms and the experiences they had and the ways in which they were dehumanized, suffered, and those images weren't foreign to me as it relates to slaves. So my grandfather on my mom's side is a migrant picker. He was born in Mississippi in the 30s. And so the ways in which he talks about his life growing up, I remember hearing these stories. It sounded like something you read in like Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. Like it didn't sound like something someone should have gone through at in a more modern country. But those stories are really moving and and they stayed with me. So then when I read Spiegel's book, when I saw it, I could immediately draw the connection between the images that are in there and the experiences of my grandfather. Like it was not a leap for me. And so the comparison made sense. I didn't see it as dehumanizing my grandfather. I saw it as a really explicit dehumanization of the white people who were doing the exploitation. It really shows the extent to which they allowed themselves to numb their conscience it wasn't anything to do with the black folks. It was everything to do. I mean, racism is a white people's problem. Like that's, that's it, you know, and, and we don't talk about it that way because it impacts negatively black people, but logically it emerges from white folks' insecurities and desire for power over other bodies that's been weaponized for capitalistic exploitation. That's a long thing we have to talk about, but. Yeah, I'm not sure we can completely unpack that in, in this conversation. But yeah, I, I totally hear you. I, I like the way of putting it, that racism is a white people's problem. I mean, the problem actually redounds onto black people exactly. more than onto white people. But the origin of the problem certainly is, is on the white side. So black veganism, you're not the only person out there talking about black veganism. It is a, it's a big deal. So do you see this movement 
as working towards expressing the kind of decolonizing of our diets that you talk about? Or is it is it mostly just a health thing? Or is it both? It is a little bit of both. I think it's it's definitely more about decolonizing diet than health. I think I think I've done enough. So this is my other world of, of anti-racism training. I've done enough research now to realize how much of the impacts of health, our health and wellness as people of color, has more to do with racism than our diets. There's an amazing professor by the name of Arlene Geronimus at the University of Michigan who basically has done a, a lot of research on the adverse health impacts of racism, particularly on Black women. And she talks about how Black women that are even well-educated have higher maternal mortality rates than like white women who didn't even go to college because of racism. That's just literally. <laughs> and so, so on one hand, health is important. Dealing with the racism, I think, is going to be the really ultimately thing that actually begins to allow us to make long-term strides with respect to health. The idea of decolonizing, though, ties into this in as much as it allows us to be conscious of what we're eating, what we're putting in our bodies, and how it's either can be a process by which we move towards liberation or allow us to be complicit in our own oppression. And so that's why I use the term black veganism. And again, like you said, I'm not the first person to use it. I'm really borrowing from Af and Silco, who I give lots of credit to in the book because I'm friends with them and they deserve a lot of, they have really influenced me. They do something different with it than what I do to a certain extent. But the reason I say black veganism, as you probably well know, is I do have to set it apart from the kind of stereotypical understanding of veganism that we have that is just, you know, people who don't care about they only care about animals. They don't care about others. This kind of white woman veganism, I think, is what I call it. Well, there there are other people who only care about their health or you know the shape of their bodies and don't even care about the animals. So uh, you know, yeah, and, uh, you really push that further. And that and, and, and that, that that's fair. I mean, those people usually call themselves plant based. You know, they don't want to say they, they don't even use the term vegan. And that's a whole nother. You know, and again, it's it's I, I want people to be healthy. You know what I'm saying? But it's it's sure. it's about looking at this from an intersectional perspective rather than being so individualistic and selfish. <laughs> it's really what I'm trying to push back at. And so for me, the concepts around Black veganism bring to light the purpose and guiding principles of not consuming animals as a way to call out the racism that's in our food system, right? Because it's not only animal agriculture that clearly harms Black people or is structurally racist because of the construction of the animal, but our food system as such is racist. I mean, that's, I write a whole chapter on that. And like the whole thing is basically designed to just exploit people of color. That's how we get all this stuff that we go in grocery stores and eat, even if it's vegan. And so it's really about disrupting that kind of normalization of racism within our food system. That to me is a part of the vegan project. And I want to call that out explicitly. And you do very successfully. And I I, I mean, you, people have to read the book because we're only touching on a lot of these topics. But I really want to get back to the to the white veganism thing, because as you can imagine, OK, I don't know, <laughs> is that I don't think I care only about animals. And to tell you the truth, most of the animal rights I people I know care a lot about people. I mean, that's stereotype. Not all of them, but but a lot of them. That stereotype is not entirely true. But at the same time, where do non... I, I know your book is written for Black people. It's not really written for white people. I have but, some stuff in there for white people. I do. I have a couple of things in there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was what I was going to point out. You do talk about white veganism. and But so... Can white people practice black veganism? And if so, don't you think we should call it something else because we look a little ridiculous? 
I mean, I can't go around saying I'm a black vegan. I like, come on. No, you you can't. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> I would say to to your first point, I do think it is stereotypical to think that um, white uh, that vegans only think about animals, but also it is it is the stereotype that most people of color have about vegans, and so it's helpful to say it, you know, because of that. Um, I had, and it's not non-existent exactly, by any means. Exactly, exactly. I had black women in my in my church uh, when I was working at that church in Compton who didn't eat meat but wouldn't say they were vegetarian because they associated with whiteness, mm-hmm. you know. And so that so, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. So that's so I think naming it black gives some people more ownership over the ideas. I think with respect to the term that you use in terms of can white people use it, and I'm only speaking for me here. I'm not going to speak for any of the other folks who are using the term. I would say that as a white person. You can't, I would say it's, you can say you practice black veganism. I wouldn't, you shouldn't identify as a black vegan, but to say I practice black veganism, I think is to be explicit about the, how you're eating in an intersectional way because of the extent to which veganism as a movement has been co-opted into kind of this kind of plant-based nutrition, other way of eating. And some, you know, and I think maybe I have a little bit of a, a window into that because I work at a college setting. I work in a university, uh, both here in San Diego, but also in Los Angeles. I work really close at UCLA. And a lot of the folks there that are vegan, they still do kind of fit into that stereotype, especially young people. They may take seriously the intersection of the nature of it, but it's mostly to do with animals and mostly to do with their bodies. And so I think there's a way in which calling it out and saying I practice black veganism, the reason it's helpful because it's going to make somebody ask you, well, what do you mean by that? And then you have the opportunity to explain to them how this is intersectional, how the system is structurally racist, how the logic of the animal is tied to the logic of racism, and how by eating this way, we can begin to dismantle these systems. To me, it's an invitation to, I know you use the term calling out. I really try to call people in. I want to invite people. And I hope you, and I do hope you got that in the book. It's really, I try to invite people to the best selves and try to do it in a compassionate way. Where I'm like, there's a better way for us to be that I think we can we can really allow for a kind of collective liberation if we are willing to to hold each other in solidarity and move forward in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. I totally did get that from the book and also saw it as just a, like not going beyond veganism because for me kind of nothing goes beyond veganism, but but showing that it has so many dimensions and and there are so many dimensions here that we could really use it in a way that would, make dramatic changes in our society, or at least try to, at least use it in an aspirational way. I think I would, at best, I would say, I try to practice Black veganism because, because otherwise, you know, I'm still, I'm still feeling a little foolish. Uh, I think that's good, though. I think that, I mean, even saying that, though, I think that because it's going to open up conversations. And I think for me, that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah, because people would not understand what that means a lot of the time. So, like, how would you put your message, what you're saying in the spirit of soul food, that's just completely missing from the conversation that's going on. I mean, there are a lot of conversations going on about race and religion and food, even animals and the environment, though not as many going on about animals. But what would you say is your added contribution to that conversation? Because I do think what you're saying, it's different. That's such a good question. I was thinking back to what I wrote in the book proposal versus what I would say now. And I think in the initial proposal, my thought was that I wanted to put something to create a book that will put Black radical politics in conversation with 
ecological and environmental ethics and that they really hadn't been done before in the ways in which I was doing it. But now having written the book, I think the point that I'm trying to make that I hadn't necessarily realized until it was done was this notion of what it means to like decolonize, I would say, ourselves and decolonize our diets. And to a certain extent, I would say decolonize the idea of what it means to be human. I think that's the stuff that is new. And what I mean by that, just to be clear, is to recognize that we're all kind of entangled with this really since the colonial encounter, this way of being human that's wrapped up in oppression and domination and exploitation. And that has been the overriding factor that's driven the ways in which we think about consumption, whether it be animals, whether it be capitalistic consumption. It's been about this drive that we have power over other bodies. And so what I'm trying to do, and what I, again, what I think I do in this book is to say that we are all kind of wrapped up in this system. We're all traumatized by it. And that in order for us to really heal from it and to grow from it, we need to disentangle ourselves from this colonial understanding of the self, that we need to create systems that are really for the service of life rather than life being at the service of these systems, such that we actually can collectively flourish. And for me, veganism is a part of that. Because it takes seriously the impact that we have with respect to climate change, with respect to racism, with respect to all the other kind of sexism things that uh, that we have mentioned already. And so I think it's just a more holistic, intersectional way of thinking about not only practicing veganism, but a way of being human that's founded on this idea of compassion. Actually, that's the last thing I should say. I think that is something I will want people to take away from it, is that it's really about how do we understand and create a new way of being human that's rooted in a kind of compassionate connection and relationship with others. You know, compassion is woven through from the very preface to the very end. It influences the way in which I think about not only eating, but the way in which I think about living. And I think in so doing, it's an invitation for us to adopt a new way of being in the world. You know, another word that you use so frequently in the book is flourishing Mm. as a goal. Can you just talk a little bit about what that would mean, both for individuals, humans, and animals. And and can you kind of return a little bit to the Christian context too? Because it seems to be related to your concept of flourishing. It is. I mean, I, I draw my concepts of flourishing, quite honestly, from Martin Luther King and his idea of the beloved community. So, I mean, it's not my idea, but it's really it's his idea that he borrows from the book of Isaiah. So for me, you know, flourishing is more than just having the option to live, I guess one might say, right? So if you think about this from the perspective of folks on the more conservative side, they talk about right to life, they're really talking about right to birth. They're not really trying to provide the fundamental necessities just that you need to actually live a flourishing life. And so when I'm I'm thinking about flourishing, it's like, what are the basic fundamentals we need as a society to make sure that those who we might call the least of these can actually be taken care of and actually be not just trying to get by but actually can feel like whole people that can contribute to society. I would argue the measure of a society is how they treat those who are dispossessed and those who are marginalized. And so our measurement of flourishing should start with those who are at the margins. And so what that looks like is it is creating this kind of beloved community that King talks about. It is recognizing that, not that it's this utopia, it's not, it is work, but it's work that we are capable of doing 
through relationships, through understanding each other's stories, through actually cultivating a kind of empathic compassion that allows me to not dehumanize you, even if I disagree with you, to recognize that if I accept any kind of dehumanization, that's a tacit acceptance that the logic of dehumanization is okay. And that's just, if we want to live in a space where no one can be dehumanized, then we can't dehumanize anybody else. (laughs) And so flourishing for me takes seriously everybody's value everybody's sacred worth. And that includes not human nature. Like it, it has to include not human nature because they're flourishing, not human nature's flourishing, flourishing animals is completely like my flourishing is tied upon their flourishing. Like these things are inextricably linked from science, you know, from a scientific perspective. And so it's trying to take all those concepts seriously so that we don't, you know, we tend to individualize everything, unfortunately, in our country. And I think that our ideas of flourishing can sometimes lead to more consumption rather than this way of kind of a well-being that's more invitational for all people. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us back to the phrase, beloved community. And my closing question, I guess, would be, what's your advice on how, how we can each live now in a way that will help actualize that beloved community? One thing you said that stood out to me and I don't even know if you would agree with this, but you were like, I don't know if there is anything higher than veganism. And, and I, what, when I hear that, what I, what I sense is that for many of us who are vegan or those of us who think about these issues, we, we recognize that they're spiritual. Like they, there's a spiritual dimension to this way of being in the world. And so for me as a theologian, it's not surprising that I think what I would argue for is the cultivation of a kind of compassionate spirituality, this way of being in the world that actually takes seriously our own selves and relationship to others, that when we are called, and part of the things that I actually write about in the book is the challenge of loving the self requires a love of the parts of ourselves that we don't like. And that's really difficult because often it's those parts of us that we don't like that we find in others that we use to shame them, to shun them and dehumanize them. So loving the totality of who we are gives us the space and capacities to love others, even in their flawedness, right? Even in their frailties. And then hopefully the goal is to work together to move towards the building of that community, of that beloved community. So it is more than just as much as I would say, please practice Black veganism. Please take seriously some of the other advice and tips I have in the book. It will be also to do, do this in a way that's really about the preservation and promotion of community, that it is really a kind of a, a cultivation of a kind of spirituality of compassion that takes seriously not only what's going on in your world, but also others, opens up space for that kind of empathic connections that ultimately, I would argue, connects, that connects us all. You don't have to be religious, I would argue, to believe from an astrophysicist perspective like Neil deGrasse Tyson. He has this amazing video where he talks about the fact that, you know, we come from the guts of stars. Like we all are interconnected in this kind of, the, the way we evolved allows us to recognize that there is this kind of deep interconnection, this deep relationality between us. And so acknowledging that, seeing that, embracing that, seeking it out in ways in which you feel uncomfortable and recognizing it, I think is, could really move us forward with respect to cultivation of this kind of beloved community. That's such a great question. I was like, man, that really, I, I got me. That was a great answer. <laughs> and... Yeah, it it really, I mean, when I said that I wasn't going to say anything more because it was such a great place to close, but now I can't shut myself up. But when I said that veganism means, I don't remember exactly what I said, it means so much to me. I think it's because it is a practice 
And it's not, I mean, I don't like to say that veganism encompasses every, you know, good thing people do. It's about not eating animals. I mean, but it is a practice that grounds that kind of thoughtfulness about how we are all connected to each other in ways we don't understand, but that are very real. And the practice makes, for me, makes it real. But you're right that we have to ground it in, in this kind of thoughtfulness. And so even though I now have the last word, I do think that your answer was was really meaningful and meant a lot to me, and I'm sure it did to everybody else. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a joy. Thank you for having me. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety's rising. Is fake meat a false promise? New report exposes the politics of alternative proteins. This is from some outfit called Food Tank. I don't know anything about them or where they're coming from. I do note that the author of this particular piece is one Elizabeth Rhodes, who seems to be very into regenerative agriculture, that particular scam. Anyway, she is really horrified about what's happening with alternative proteins. And she is referring to something else I don't know anything about, the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. Like, who calls themselves experts? <laughs> the International Panel of Experts. I don't know. Anyway, apparently these folks recently released the Politics of Protein Report, calling for policymakers and consumers to redirect support from alternative proteins toward local and sustainable food systems. You know, maybe if they're asking for people to redirect support. It should be from from factory farming <laughs> to local and sustainable food systems, since factory farming is a lot bigger than alternative proteins. But no, we alternative proteins must have arrived because they are now seen as the enemy. Uh, and apparently, according to this report, by 2025, the market for them will grow sixfold, and that will be to U.S. $28 billion dollars. Both governments and private investors are propping up systems that undermine sustainability, even when they claim it is targeted to support sustainability goals. This is from one Phil Howard, who's an IPS food expert. So he he is an expert in the International Panel of Experts (laughs) and a lead researcher. According to this article, that the the really big problem is that these alternatives are, are... like, she doesn't seem to be concerned with the regular industrial food system, though she does seem to think that that's really bad. But she thinks the alternatives are just going to create all of the same problems. It will result in corporatization of food systems. Wow, imagine that happening. <laughs> like, honey, that ship is sailed. Exacerbate dependency on fossil fuels. Uh, exactly how is that? I don't know. Promote processed foods in Western diets. Well, we've done the processed food thing. We don't need to dwell on that and damage livelihoods of millions of farmers in the global South, according to the report. Like, how is it going to damage their livelihoods? They're still going to, I mean, we still have to have food. Like, whether, whether we're turning them into alternative proteins or just eating them, we'll still have to have food. 
But no, uh, it's going to be a disaster because large agribusinesses dominate today's market. Companies like Tyson, JBS, and Cargill. Apparently, she hasn't heard about Impossible and Beyond Meat. So uh, I don't know what, what that's all about. And, you know, it is true that these large agribusiness companies are getting into alternative proteins. And, and yeah, there are a lot of problems in our food system. But, you know, the way to fix them isn't just to torture animals and, and, and remove support from alternative proteins to sustainable agriculture or whatever it is she's promoting. You know, she says they're all ultra-processed. They contain soy. Oh, my God, not soy. Palm oil. They, you know, I don't know any that contain palm oil, to be honest. And wheat. What, what, what's wrong with wheat? I don't know. Uh, well-meaning consumers of alternative proteins may not realize they're buying into the same giant meat companies that are operating the biggest of factory farms, contributing to deforestation and forced labor, and slaughtering millions of animals every day. But they're buying something different from those companies and trying to like get those companies to, to stop slaughtering millions of animals every day. Doesn't that count? Apparently not. Uh, so what do we need? We need, this is how the article ends, we need more comprehensive food policies and we need more voices at the table, including groups who are rarely heard, such as pastoralists, artisanal fishers, indigenous peoples, and food insecure groups. I, don't, I like how we bring all these people together. If you are an artisanal fisher, you're just exactly coming from the same position as a food insecure person. Uh, you know, trying to borrow a little cred there, maybe. Oh, my God. That's a, this one is a rare treat, isn't it? All right. Speaking of rare treat, well, they're not so rare because this is from our favorite Hannah Thompson Weeman, who, you know, I've, I've heard she's going to become the president at the a Animal Agriculture Alliance, but she's still writing for Meeting Place as the vice president of communications. Activists break out the arts and crafts supplies for latest stunts. And she is, of course, referring to the same situation we were talking about in our intro, the super glowing, which, you know, I, I love because I love an activist. What can I say? She's upset about it. Over the past several weeks, direct action everywhere activists have used the tactic of gluing themselves to surfaces during protests, making themselves difficult to remove. And first, I had forgotten about this one. A DXC activist glued her hand to a table during a legislative hearing in California and refused to leave. I think that was Zoe who we were talking about in the uh, in the intro. That was this like horrendous situation in California where DXC was was in strong support of AB twenty seven sixty four, which would put a delay. I think we talked about it on the podcast. It, it would put a moratorium on new factory farms, and instead. The legislators are changing it to call for a study on the impacts of animal agriculture. Well, guys, call me. Just call me. You don't have to do a study. I'll tell you about the impacts of animal agriculture. I know a lot about them. So does everybody else. But apparently, you have to do a study. Then she goes on to refer to the, the second of the super gluing situations. The third one was a chain, the one we were talking about earlier. And this was at a Minnesota Timberwolves basketball game also. She glued her hand to the floor. She was promptly removed, though unfortunately the stunt attracted significant social media chatter about Glue Girl and met DXC's objective of getting media attention. Yeah, not good enough media attention, I have to say, but, you know, good enough media attention is really hard to get as an animal activist. This time, the target of the protest was the team's owner, who was affiliated. He owned it with an egg farm that DXC is targeting with the campaign due to depopulation as a result of avian and avian influenza outbreak. 
as predicted. I, I don't know what she means by as. Did she predict this? I don't know. She predicted avian influenza. Maybe she did. I don't know. But anyway, uh, don't you love the way they put it? Depopulation, uh, leaving out the fact that they are just like, the, the way these animals die is beyond horrific, slowly, slowly suffocating and being overheated to death. Great way to go. Takes hours. Oh, so, you know, I say, I'll say it once again. I love these DXC activists. All right. From meetingplace.com, the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves, spurring a phoenix-like rise in beef demand. Oh. Let's hope not. He starts off by talking about the jungle and how, you know, it was Upton Sinclair's uh, book in the 1900s, early 1900s, that excoriated the, the meat industry. He's worried that the fabric of the meat industry is now being rent again by plant-based faux meat, internecine moors amongst its participants, nutritionists lamenting the scourge of a meat-based diet. He puts scourge in quotes. I don't. Climate activists decrying cattle methane belches exacerbating global warming. Generic marketing and sales programs and taxpayer-funded payouts to smaller industry participants to level the competitive playing field, thereby curbing the concentrated power of the industry giants. Well, I'm in favor of most of all of those things, so I certainly am not in favor of taxpayer-funded payouts to small industry. I think we should stop all taxpayer-funded payouts to this industry, period. But anyway, I digress. You probably could have guessed that anyway. It is my belief, that is, it is his belief, that each of these trends can be positively harnessed by and for a resurgent beef industry. He's saying it has to be resurgent because apparently it has declined. We used to eat a lot more beef than, than we do now. Well, that's not exactly true. Beef consumption has gone up, but so has population. That's the point he's making. And population and individual beef consumption has gone down quite a bit since the 1970s. What he feels has to be done is that the industry has to cater to consumers' interests, not just in great taste and nutrition, but to the ancillary benefits of environmental stewardship and all that concept entails, i.e., the world is falling apart and we have to convince people that we're not contributing to it. If the meat industry could rise from its self-centered worst in the early 1900s, it most certainly can do so now by concentrating on positively marketing branded beef. Notice he's he's talking, I mean, he does write a marketing column and he's talking about marketing. He's not really talking about, really making any suggestions about how to fix all of these problems. He's just talking about how to market your way out of them. Consumer concerns about climate change and nutrition have become paramount. And in recognition, the industry's production, all right, he does bow to, uh, he doesn't say how production could, could address it, but he does say it should. And marketing methods must evolve to meet these new and vibrant consumer desires if beef demand increases are to continue. By that continue, he's referencing the fact that it has gone down a lot since the 70s. Recently, there's been a small uptick per person, which is not good news. Sorry to leave you with bad news. But that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favored charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.